Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, Arvid Schultz passed away yesterday morning at the regional hosp- at the Chinook Hospital quite suddenly. So I'm sure your thoughts and prayers are with Francis. Thank you. Okay, my question for you is you've t- you talked about the democratic deficit, but I was surprised you didn't talk about voter suppression both in Canada and in the U.S., and in particular um, the fact that Elections Canada has said that for the four days prior to the election um, that there was interference in our Canadian federal vote and that people were being told to go to different polls, polling places, rather than the ones where they were supposed to. Thank you. Yeah, no, there are <coughs> there are ongoing investigations in Elections Canada. In fact, one case mm-hmm. um, in Etobicoke went all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think that is a that is. I think what is different is there's there's been attempts at voter suppression in in the past. Um, and um, we've seen this in a number of different cases where they'll create a, an artificial candidate. Sometimes it's a real person. Sometimes it's not even a real person running as an independent um, simply to, to split the vote in some areas or coming up with a candidate with the same name as another local candidate, uh, ballot boxes uh, being stuffed. This has all occurred in, in Canadian history. Um, as it has in the U.S. history. I think what is different now is the type of technology that's being used. And by the technology, I'm not talking about the phone. I'm talking about these very sophisticated voter ID systems that all parties have, but one party is much better at it, and that's the Conservative Party is much better at it. And the reason why they're better at it is they got in there first, um, they brought in a system from the, the Republican Party in the United States. They brought it up to Canada, and they've been acquiring data. And so they've got these large voter maps where they can isolate uh, potential and likely voters based on uh, segmenting population. And you, some of the things are really easy. You know, have you donated money in the past? Have you had a lawn sign on your, on your lawn? But it's the other thing. So what magazines do you get? Okay. Um, what's, your, what's your age demographic? Uh, male, female, age, ethnicity, religion, all of those sorts of things, that there's much more targeting of voters now. And I think that's, that's what's leading into the, uh, to the robocall issue. Um, the United States voter suppression, it, they call it aiming at voter fraud, but there was a major study that was done of voter fraud, and they found one case in Florida of a person who voted under an assumed name. And by the way, it wasn't, a, um, it wasn't an illegal alien. It was a foreigner. They were from Canada. <coughs> but they're trying to strip thousands of people off the rolls because so it's better to have 20,000 uh, legal people not be allowed to vote in case of one person that's illegal. So you are, I think, part of this, this democratic deficit is the growth of a professional political class that's not about ideas, but it's about winning. And, and in the U.S., it's much bigger. I mean, they have these large conventions of strategists and pollsters because there's so many elections in the United States. You've got primary elections. You've got elections every two years. You've got municipal elections. They spent $6 billion in the most recent election, $6 billion. 
Um, and that's, that's not just ads, right? That is going to paid staff. So you have this professional class that moves from campaign to campaign. And so they're not interested in the ideas of the candidate. They're interested solely in, in winning. And some of that has spilled over to Canada. But because we have much tighter finance laws, we have much fewer elections, it's very tough to make a living doing that. And uh, that's probably a good thing. Uh, to put it in comparison, last September, um, my wife and I went down to Missoula, Montana for the weekend. Right in the middle of the, the 2012 American election, and we stopped at Lincoln, Montana on the way back for lunch, and there was a local paper, and there was this front-page story about the money that the two gubernatorial candidates had raised, and each had raised $1.5 million for their campaign. This is in a state that has a population uh, less than Calgary, less than a million people. They had each raised $1.5 million. The Progressive Conservative Party of Alberta, for their entire campaign, all 87 candidates raised less than $1.5 million. So it shows you the, the degree of, of money. So uh, I'm agreeing with you on one sense. I don't think it's as bad as being described, but I think it has the potential because of the sophisticated voter ID system. Uh, I think the absence of money prevents some of this stuff from occurring. Hi, my name is Gene Olexen. Uh, just like to uh, have you comment on a few things. Uh, after every election, whether it's provincial or federal, <coughs> uh, we're always talking about uh, our voting system and, and the need. Just, just those who lost. Just it? those who lost, yeah. for sure, obviously. But our, our voting system first passed the post. Yep. Um, we complain about it. Uh, we talk about proportional representation, but we never seem to get beyond that point. <coughs> I'd just like you to comment on that. Most uh, political scientists uh, believe that we need to move away from uh, single-member plurality or first-past-the-post. I'm probably a minority that I think um, it's a better system than, than what we have, or, or at least the alternatives are, are worse. Um, and I'll give you a couple of examples and illustrations of that. But... There have been two major attempts at changing the electoral system, and there was a referendum in both B.C. and Ontario, and both of them failed. Uh, so I think the issue for the moment is, is a bit dead. Uh, it was very interesting listening to Trudeau on Tuesday because he was advocating a preferential ballot. A preferential ballot is where you rank all the candidates, you know, one, two, three, four. So not a, a proportional representation, but you simply base it on that. And if the first doesn't get 50%, then you go down to the second choice and so on. I'm listening to this, and I said, at that moment, I knew that they, there truly are a third party because the liberals never used to advocate changing the electoral system because it benefited them. The problem you have is to change the electoral system is going to require the government of the day to change the electoral system. And the government of the day was elected based on the old system. Uh, there has, as I said, two attempts at, uh, at change, and both of them were, were defeated. Um, why do I favor first past the post? I'll, I'll explain why. Uh, one is, I think in a country like Canada, if you went to some sort of proportional representation, you could end up with a lot of splinter parties. Uh, New Zealand went to this uh, because they were tired of the Liberal Party versus the Labour Party. And in New Zealand, the Liberals were actually conservative. So you had the, the two-party system. Well, now you have a two-party minority system. The party that's the balance of power is called the New Zealand First Party, which is uh, basically a xenophobic anti-immigrant party. 
um, that can acquire four or five seats, and it would be the difference. So if you don't like the Bloc Québécois, if we went to proportional representation, you'd have an Alberta first party, you'd have a BC first party, you'd have an Ontario first party. Under our system, the only way that you can govern this country is to have support across the country. And uh, when the Conservatives first formed their government, they won 10 seats in Quebec. And, and I think that was, that was a key moment. When the Liberals under Jean Chrétien were in power, they had seats in Alberta. They had seats in every province. And so I think um, that's why I support the, the current system. But I will acknowledge that I'm in the minority of political scientists on that. Thanks, Duane. I was anticipating your talk, and, and uh, I'm glad that you're here. Uh, my name is Mary Shillington. Uh, I was interested in you talking about um, the power of the PMO uh, office, um, not because that was new news to me, but because you talked about the young people who, who are there working in their 20s. Yep. And what do you think the impact of that is for all of us, and do we need to be concerned in doing something about it? One of the reasons they're all young is they don't pay them very much, and they work them to death. And so what you get is these political junkies who have been grown up in the, the young conservative club or the young liberal club, uh, and then they get this job opportunity in the PMO after their bachelor's degree or perhaps even after a law degree, and they're 24 or 25. Well, you work in the PMO's office for three or four years. That sets you up very well to get a nice job in the private sector. So you work like a dog for very low wages, and then things look better for you. And so when you talk to people that are in their 30s, that are in their 40s, that worked at the PMO, they were all very young when they did it. And, it, and it's basically because they're cheap labor. So when we talk about the Prime Minister's office, you immediately think of people like Hugh Siegel or Eddie Goldenberg. Well, they're at the, they're at the top of the PMO office. You know, they're, they're, they're the chief of staff. You know, the guy journal and all of that. But it's the hundreds of workers that they've got. Uh, and not just, uh, they, they now assign them to various ministers. They assign them to, uh, <coughs> to individual MPs as well. So um, that's where I think, that's why they're that age. And what does it say about that? Well, the two stories I'll give you, uh, because they are very inexperienced when they come in there, and they, they do cause some, some errors. Uh, the two stories, well, one I already talked about was Chalk River, where they didn't understand the nuclear scientists because they were using too big of words. Uh, but the second occurred in Afghanistan, and there was a meeting that they had with Karzai, and I think it was uh, Peter McKay at that time was meeting with them. Well, there's all of these PMO officials that are with McKay that are trying to get into the room and it says, well, there's only room for 10. And you have this 25-year-old saying, you know, don't you know who I am? And it says, I don't know who you are, but you see this gun. <laughs> and so you're out and we're in. So it, that's where you get, you, you, you get a very heightened sense of importance when you're of that age and you have that sort of access, that is way beyond what your capabilities are. And I think those are, those are dangers. My name is Blaine Thacker, and I had the privilege of being the MP from this district, starting with Joe Clark in 79, okay. and then Mr. Trudeau for five years, and Mr. Mulroney for nine years. So I've been part of uh, or observing all sorts of shenanigans and to save to get power uh, and uh, in terms of uh, first past the post I'll be right beside you fighting for that because if you go to proportional representation you're into an Italian situation 
look at uh, the crisis of that. So I would fight uh, with you on that issue. Well, I got two people uh, now, so <laughs> watch out. <laughs> if we move into proportional representation, I'll tell you it'll be a lot worse. But <coughs> just quickly, uh, everyone here knows that when the government uh, parliament is sitting, bills are introduced. There's a first reading, which is just tabling it. There's a second <coughs> reading where people s talk about the principle of the bill. Then it goes to a committee stage and witnesses are brought in to give expert advice. Amendments are proposed from the committee. It goes back to third reading and that then after royal signing is, is law. But what happened in terms of the bills is that the opposition was fighting each one of these individual bills and taking time. And so the f government finally became frustrated and brought in the omnibus bill. The first omnibus bill, to my recollection of history, was in 1956 with the, the Trans-Canada Pipelines. I don't know if you remember that or not. Yep. Uh, so anyways, therefore, when we came back and the government imposed the omnibus bill, the first omnibus bill, I agreed with the government. There had been enough opposition and enough airing of issues that it was time to, to vote. But the second one that they've got before Parliament today I agree with you totally. That's inappropriate. It's wrong. It's uh, immoral of whatever words you want to use. It's an abuse of uh, the power. And so I'd appreciate your comments. Last point. Uh, to my mind, the secret is for the problem is, first of all, television in the House of Commons. That's totally changed the nature of lawmaking. <coughs> And the second is airplanes, where in the old days, members would go to Ottawa. They would uh, be there for weeks and weeks. They would be having uh, the, the rich ones would sit in the shadow Frontenac or Laurier, and the poor ones would uh, be uh, in Lord Elgin. But they got to know each other, and so these bills would get through in a more timely way. Now that people have to go home every weekend to go <coughs> to the smallest meeting, uh, they don't get to know the other members of parliament, becomes very alienated, and is a serious problem. But uh, I don't know what the answer is. Thank you. I would agree with you on those last two things, uh, especially the, the idea of airplanes. And we, we see that the, the week for the parliamentary week is getting shorter and shorter. You know, because they've got a they've got a race back to their their constituency. Even if that constituency is you know the hours away from from Ottawa, it's designed for the people from BC and Alberta and, and the Yukon. Television as well, but trying to take the cameras out now, I think those those days are gone. Those, those days are are, are past. Um, really, what you're dealing with when you're talking about omnibus bills, and you might as well add closure to that as well, time allocation is. Where is the line between having a democratic debate and the efficiency needed to get bill through? And, and where is that line? I think that's the, that's the argument that you have. I don't think you want continuous filibusters, um, you know, to preventing uh, the passing of bills. But at the same time, I don't want to see ramroading bills through through Parliament. It's finding that balance, and I'm not sure where the where the line is. Uh, it, it's largely going to depend on where you sit. If you're on the government side, your focus is on the efficiency end. If you're on the opposition bench, that's the only tool you got. And you want to – sometimes you're making arguments for public consumption. Sometimes you're making arguments to improve the bill. Many times you're making that simply to stop it or delay it. 
and uh, and I think that is um, that's an opposition tactic. They don't have many, <laughs> so um, that's the philosophical debate. And coming up with where that line is, I think is is difficult. Um, so I'll le I'll leave it at that. But I agree with most of the other comments that you made. So ban airplanes and ban television will be better off. <laughs> My name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming, Dwayne. I know it took you <coughs> long to get out of Calgary as it took you to get the rest of the way. Yeah. Uh, my question is uh, about voter apathy. When a government can get elected with uh, get elected with a majority, when only 25 percent of the eligible voters put them in there, <coughs> there's got to be uh, some serious consequences in terms of uh, you know people being happy about who is governing. And uh, I wonder if you have any, I think uh, the government obviously is quite happy to have voter apathy when they can get elected with, with that smaller percentage. So what's your feeling on that? Are you, are you thinking uh, Stephen Harper wants to get everybody out to the polls next time? You want your supporters to get to the polls. Okay. Uh, Let's look at voter turnout. I don't think voting is the sole mechanism of political participation. I think there's lots of different ways of participating in politics. But we know that if you're not voting, a lot of those other forms of participation don't occur either. This is an ongoing problem, not just in Canada, not just in the United States, but across the Western world, and it started in about the mid-1980s. The 1988 election, we were around 80% voter turnout. Uh, and it's been almost going on a straight line down ever since to where we're around 60% today. But it's not equal. The ridings that have the largest voter, we still have ridings in this country where voter turnout approaches 80%. Any mm -hmm. guesses what province that is? Quebec. No, not Quebec. Prince Edward Island. Because you know the candidates. You see them in the coffee shop. You know, it's not an abstract person. It's Bob. You know, and I think that that matters. The second thing, and I did a talk at, at a senior's residence in, in Calgary about a month ago, so I pulled off all this data. In the last election, voter turnout was around 60% across Canada. In the 65 to 74-year-old cohort, it was around 75, 76%. 18 to 25, it was 37%. And I think that is the concern. Um, because if you don't vote at a young age, voting is, is a habit, right? And uh, if you don't vote at a young age, it's difficult to start when you're in your 30s. Just like if you don't start smoking when you're 19 or 15, you're not going to all of a sudden be 30 and go, hey, maybe I'll try the smoking thing. Uh, same thing with voting. And so I think that, that is a danger. And finally, parties know that. So parties target likely voters. So they ignore the youth vote, but the youth eventually become 30. And so I'm very concerned that we're going to have a long-standing problem with, with voter turnout. Alan Gregg, I'm going to steal from him again, was asked about this. And he was, you know, a pollster, advertising marketer, all of this sort of stuff. And he said, he made this comparison. He goes, all right, let's say I'm running McDonald's and I'm competing with Burger King. So I'm going to put out a whole bunch of TV ads saying uh, there's um, BSC in uh, Burger King hamburgers. So Burger King's going to take a couple ads out saying there's Ebola 
in McDonald's hamburgers. And what's the result? People stop eating hamburgers, right? So when you have parties, party A saying party B are the devil and will destroy you and the world will never be the same, and party B says, yeah, but we're not as bad as you guys, well, the, they're damaging the political brand. And so I think they, we know negative ads work. We know negative ads work because when we do exit polling and you ask people why they vote, it's based on some of the stuff that they heard, right? It gets into your subconscious. Think how effective those early attack ads were on framing Michael Ignatieff and Stefan Dion, okay? So we know these work. But the problem is they work at winning, but they, they also damage the political brand. And so I think there's some, some element of that. So how do you change that? How do you say to a party, we want you guys to focus on ideals and not about winning? It's going to be a pretty short party. Yes, sir. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Trevor Page. Uh, thanks for sharing with us your <coughs> perspective on the so-called democratic deficit. I, I liked what you said about possible fixes, but I wonder if you'd like to elaborate on the one about changing culture because that seemed to be the one which is Pandora's box and open-ended. It, the, the, it is the Pandora's box, and I was asked about uh, the Lethbridge Herald asked me for an interview after, and so I'm going to steal from that. And they said, you spent a lot of time talking about the, the federal system. Does that mean that there's no democratic deficit in Alberta? <clears throat> after I spit out my coffee... I then talked about some of the, the issues that are currently at play. But I also said the culture is starting to change in Alberta. And how do I know the culture is changing? Because of the amount of attention that is now being paid to illegal donations to the PC party. This law took into effect in 2004 where it's illegal for municipalities, post-secondary institutions, government departments to expense payments to a political party. And by and large, they're all to one, one party. Um, but that is starting to change because attention has now been placed on it because of the Freedom of Information Act. Not only that, because I, I went through Lynn Redford's documents as part of the, the, the report, and I will tell you there's more stories to come. Um, they, these aren't one-day stories, two-day stories. I spent half a day with Charles Russell going through the documents, and there's, there's a lot more to, to come. And, but the thing was, it all stopped at a moment in time. And it all stopped when Stephen Duckett was brought in to head Alberta Health Services, and he said, we're not doing this anymore. This is wrong. And I've made the argument that one of the reasons he did that is he was an outsider. He's not someone from Alberta. He was brought in from Australia to run the Alberta health system. And he looked at this and says, we don't do this anywhere else. Stop doing that. And it stopped. Um, Alison Redford, to her credit, put up her entire expense report since she was uh, elected as an MLA. And people were going through it. And, and so they're focusing on the hotel bills in London or the hotel bills in China. And then they, they discover this $24 carafe of coffee, not realizing it was for a meeting of 12 people. But my favorite was the, uh, the dinner at Mucho Burrito, you know, for $20. So we're not really talking living high in the hog at Mucho Burrito, which is a fine establishment. Uh, but if that's where you're expensing things... Right? This isn't Chris Steakhouse. So this is also a statement. Whether you like or dislike the ideology of the Wild Rose Party, having a large opposition 
in the legislature is making a difference. And I'm not talking about their economic policies. I'm not talking about their social policies. I'm talking about their democratic uh, policies. Now, one of the reasons they're going after this is they're in the opposition, and I would hope that things would change if, if they were in power. But these are things opposition parties do. And so when they had the posters and the graphs in their press conference on Monday highlighting the reports, it's because Rustnell also interviewed Daniel Smith last week, right? So they, they had an inside track. But that's the sort of pressure that you need is a more competitive party system. So I actually see signs of hope uh, in Alberta. I see signs of hope in Calgary Centre right now. That's what a cultural change means. It's not figuring out the various institutional things. We have enough laws. It's actually following the laws. I was disappointed with the Election Reform Act that they, the government brought in, especially in the aftermath of the Cates donation, um, which probably wasn't illegal, but it sure as hell looks bad when one person writes a check for $430,000 a week before the election. Do I think he bought the election? No. Does, do, will, will we ever see an arena built for him in Edmonton? Not after that check. Right, so uh, I truly believe he did this because he feared Wild Rose, but he has absolutely no political instincts, which also illustrates his inability to get the uh, uh, the uh, the arena deal in Edmonton, where they gave him everything he wanted, and then he came back and says, "Well, could you throw in a few more things?" Even Stephen Mandel, who wanted to give him everything, said, "No, that that's too much." So I think there's hope out there, but it really requires an educated population paying attention. That's the culture change. Uh, Professor Bragg, my name is Frank Toth. Uh, we surely appreciate your semi-comical comments about our political situation. However, uh, even at 90, you expect a little directives. What is uh, your stand of where we should go? Because you, you throw one against the other, say this is good, but on the other hand, this is all it happened. But two wrongs don't make a right. We're expecting some kind of directive what to do. Okay, secondly, my question is that the latest FRAP in, in, in Ottawa, Mr. David McGinty? Yes. All right. He, he, he blew the Canadian political scene to hell <coughs> because he said the Alberta MPs are all shills of the oil companies, which in fact is true. And he, he offered, he's offered to resign. In fact, our prime minister is the son of the of of uh, uh, accountant executive of Imperial Oil. You'll find it on page 11 of the now famous book, The Tar Sands, by Mr. Uh, Nikiforiuk, okay? Yep. He's the son. He is also a born American. Everything he does in Canada is to revert to uh, American standards and, and private businesses. The predication of it, the next move on his uh, on his uh, hard on crime is go going to be to to privatize jails. I give it another four months. They've already started this week by getting a thing. Okay, but I'm just saying. What do you think? What's your opinion on this, David McGinty frap, where he calls them all all shills of the oil companies? <coughs> well. Um that didn't work out very well for David McGinty, and he did resign, and his resignation was accepted, and he was pillarized not just by conservatives, but by his own party, the Liberal Party. And if I'm Harvey Locke, and I am leading narrowly in a very tight race in Calgary Centre, 
this may turn the tide. It's simple, something like this that could make the difference in a small race. And uh, it allowed Joan Crockett to get up on her soapbox and bring up the, the, the stories of the NEP and of Pierre Trudeau and Western alienation and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I don't think, I, th I think it's a nasty state of affair when we are pitting one branch of the co uh, country against another branch of the country. But I've heard similar remarks made about Quebec MPs from Alberta MPs. Um, so uh, it's just the, it's just part, it, would this have raised as much of an issue if Calgary Centre wasn't going on? Probably not. Uh, as far as Stephen Harper, I have my disagreements with Stephen Harper. But to, to say that he's trying to impose a U.S.-style system, I, I don't accept that. I think uh, you compare him to a conservative in the United States, he looks kind of liberal to some of those people. Uh, I think the fact that his father was working for Imperial Oil, God, if we prevented everybody whose dad worked in a business like that from going into politics... I think it's a toupee myself, but I think, it's, I think he's a very smart toupee because he gradually makes it grayer. Uh, I think uh, he, um, he, he is a very interesting individual and boring at the same time. Because if you look, because really, he's been in power for six years. And if he was to lose power tomorrow, and you'd go back over a six-year period and say, what did he accomplish? You know, what, what was it that he accomplished? So when you look at Jean Chrétien, you can say, well, what was his major achievement? Well, he put us into surplus, and he got rid of the deficit. You look at Brian Mulroney, brought in free trade, brought in the GST. You look at Pierre Trudeau, you know, brought in the Charter of Rights. You look and patriot the Constitution. Look at Lester Pearson bringing in health care and the flag. You can pinpoint an achievement. I don't see what that achievement is, except for two possible areas. One is he's working on the destruction of the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, and I really mean that. The big L liberal, he wants to destroy the Liberal Party of Canada. He would rather see a stronger NDP and crush the Liberals. And a lot of his effort has been aimed at, at that. And um, the second is what I call conservatism by inches. Not radical change, but little bits and pieces of change over time is going to add up. So you look at the GST cut. Okay? Very popular. But it also reduced revenue to the federal government, which is going to reduce their spending capacity. So he's, he's shrinking the beast, as Grover Nurquist used to talk to it, starving the beast. You look at the prison buildup and the crime bill, bringing in mandatory minimum sentencing, bringing up brand new prisons for a dropping crime rate. Again, conservatism by, by inches. And I think that's his big achievement. He's not going after the hot-button issues. Right, the, the the hidden agendas on, on abortion and same-sex marriage and all that stuff. No, it's it's these little things that people don't notice until he's gone, and historians look back and go, "Look at what happened in ten years." So, that those are my more critical comments on on Stephen Harper. Dwayne, we have time for one more. One question. more question. There we go. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chair. Uh, great presentation. Uh, you got me worried, but that's okay. My name is Joseph Natuk. Uh, I guess a couple of comments. I, I think the uh, economic situation in, in, in the last four or five years may have something to do with what you can do in the world, I guess. Mm -hmm. The other thing, I, the other uh, regarding the, the uh, <coughs> governance and so on, uh, how much of an effort is being put in by institutions like yours 
to try and help us solve some of these governing issues? Uh, like, you know, is the way we have the system today, are, is there any anybody, any of your grad students working on possible solutions or uh, this sort of thing? I think it would be a tremendous project. If I was 50 years younger, I'd be right in there and, and wanting a job with you to, to do uh, some major research in this regard. Thank you. Well, uh, we have a nice little program at Mount Royal in our policy program, which combines economics, political science, and some public policy. Um, it's a niche program. It's not psychology. Um, which is massive. Uh, it's not public relations, but those that, that graduate, mo the va vast majority, I would put in the 90 percentile, are working in their field, uh, are going to professional schools, are going on to graduate programs. So our job is not to provide the answers or provide the direction. It's to train the next generation that, that is going to do that. And we have an 11-year-old program, and these people are starting to, to rise up. So where are my people? Um, they're in the Alberta Health Services working their way up. They're in the City of Calgary working their way up. I have two interns working on the preferential access inquiry, the, the so-called health care queue jumping inquiry. So um, we've got them in think tanks. Uh, we've got them working um, in the Privy Council office. And so really that's, that's where change is going to, to occur. And so I feel our job is to provide them with the tools, not telling them what to do, but providing with the tools and to give them the best judgment so that eventually when they get into these positions of power, they do make the right decisions. So, and with that, I'll wrap it up. Thanks very much, Duane, and thank, uh, thank you to all of you for your questions and for coming out today. Uh, I'd just like to remind you the next presentation is a week today, next Thursday, November 29th, where the topic is going to be doing business with China, and the speaker is going to be Gordon Holden. So we hope uh, you can join us then. Thank you very much.